Welcome to lesson number nine, Master Plan for Life. And are you page 81 in your notebooks? Okay. So that'll be page 81. And lesson number nine, page 81, upper right hand, you see it says Doctrine of Man and Sin. So this is a new section. This is a third section now uh, in our five section part one. So Master Plan for Life has the two parts. Part one's answering the question, who am I? Part two, why am I here? To answer that one question, who am I? In part one, we got the five doctrines we're looking at. We've looked at the doctrine of God. We just finished the doctrine of the Bible. Now, doctrine of man and sin, and then the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. And that'll complete part one. Then we'll move to part two, why am I here? So the, the logic of the layout of this is that, of course, you start with God. Everything begins with God. Uh, so we start with the doctrine of God, but then we look at God's communication to us in Scripture, thus the doctrine of the Bible. That. But now we want to delve into what does the Bible say about us and about our problem. And so humanity, man, and sin is this section now. But then the fourth section, after we finish here, will be if we've got a problem with sin, well then what's the solution to that? Doctrine of, of Christ is the solution. And having looked at who God is in section one, looked at who humanity is now in this third section, when we get to section four, we're in a good spot to look at who Christ is because He's both God and man. So looking at the characteristics of God, having looked at the characteristics of man, we can look at the characteristics of the God-man. And then the final section is the doctrine of salvation, how what Christ has done is applied to us personally. So section three of part one, doctrine of man and, and sin. Top of page 81, in order to adequately answer the question, who am I, one must understand mankind's origin, nature, original sin, and its continuing results. So this lesson is going to look at the, the first two of those, our origin and our nature, the origin of mankind, nature of mankind. So first, the origin of, of mankind. The creation of humanity was instantaneous and immediate on the sixth day of God's creative acts. Now, you look at those two words, uh, instantaneous and immediate. And those can, uh, for many of us, we use those interchangeably. And so that may seem redundant to say it was instantaneous and immediate. But it's not really uh, because. By instantaneous, we mean in an instant. But by immediate, immediate, if you think about the breakdown of that word, mediated, if something is mediated, that means that there was, uh, there was another process, another person, something involved that mediated what it is you're doing. And so when you say immediated, then immediate, it means there was nothing in between. So this is saying that it was in an instant, in a moment that God created, uh, when He created each of the things He did on the six days, it happened as He spoke, instantaneously. And also immediate, without any mediating materials, without any mediating processes, any of that. And so these two words are not being used the same way. They, they, are, they are different, and they both say something true 
about God's, God's creation. Now, many people believe, we say here, that mankind is the product of evolution. So that would be then mediated, right? So that would be using some kind of process in order to produce uh, humanity. However, a study of Genesis 1 and 2 reveals that mankind did not evolve in, in any sense. So let me talk just for a little bit about that, about the idea of evolution and its relationship to the way we view science and, and the Bible. Uh, one way to think about evolution is to think about the root assumption of evolution, which is a fancy term, uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. Uh, and at the root, that just has the word uniform. So the idea with evolution then, that you, you have to accept, if you're going to have the billions of years that they come up with uh, for the age of the, the universe, and then millions and millions of years for, uh, for humanity, for life, if you're going to do that, you have to accept some form of uniformitarianism, that things have been uniform from now going back. And here's why I say that. The, the dating methods that are used in order to come up with those vast ages assume that, for example, carbon-14, you guys have heard of that, carbon-14 dating? Well, carbon-14 takes a fossil and it it measures the amount of radioactive carbon-14 that's in that fossil, and it tries to determine how old it is based upon the current rate of decay of carbon-14. Now notice the current rate. So in order to now extrapolate backwards to know how old that is, the rate of decay would have to have remained constant or been uniform. So that's what we mean by, by uniformitarianism. Uh, that's, built in, that's a built-in assumption to the most widely used dating method that there is in carbon-14. In carbon now, what if, though, uh, the, the rate of decay of carbon-14 has not been constant? It's not been uniform. Like, what would affect the, the rate of decay? What, would, what, what kind of thing might do that? What if God intervened somehow in the normal processes of, of, the, of the environment, of the earth, with something like, say, a flood? That would radically change all of that, couldn't it? So that it hasn't been exactly uniform going all the way back. And then you've had all kinds of other events that, that have occurred. And so... I'm fine if somebody wants to say this is the date of such and such fossil, and then I simply want to point out the assumptions you have to make in order to come up with that, that date. If those assumptions are true, then I'll buy, your, I'll buy your date. The problem is you can't prove those assumptions are true. You can't prove that, and in all likelihood, logically, they're not true, that it has remained constant from today all the way, all the way back. So that's part of what we mean by then uniformitarianism, that you have to assume that it's uniform going all the, way, all the way back. Mankind was, we say in that paragraph, created by God from the dust of the earth immediately. By immediate is meant that creation was God's direct act apart from any intermediate process such as evolution. If you accept Genesis 1 and 2, you cannot hold to evolution. So that is something that 
Christian people have tried to do. They've tried to harmonize evolution with Genesis 1 and 2, but we try to make clear here that, look, if you're going to accept the Bible, the Bible does not teach that the universe, and it does not teach that humanity came into existence by any sort of evolutionary process, that God did it instantaneously and, and immediately. So let's talk about that uh, a little bit. When the Bible says in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God created the, the heavens and the earth, that is a summary statement to just say, okay, this is what now these next two chapters are going to be about. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 starts to get into the detail. And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, it, it says. And then it says, and God said and uh, spoke into existence, and the evening and the morning were the first day. You guys remember that? And the evening and the morning were the, the first day. And He speaks into existence. So... When, when the Bible says in the very first verse of Scripture, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that's an absolute beginning. That is, that's the beginning of everything. It's not just the beginning of humanity. It's not just the beginning of the earth. It's the beginning of everything except God. In the beginning, God, and then notice you have this phrase, the heavens and the earth. So you've only got three entities mentioned there. God, heavens, earth. God has always existed. In the beginning, God was already there. But in the beginning, the heavens were not and the earth was not. And God created them all at the same time. The heavens and the earth. In fact, that phrase, the heavens and the earth, in Hebrew is what's called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. M-E-R-I-S-M. A merism. And a merism is just a way of saying two things to encompass the whole. Heavens and the earth encompasses everything within them. God created everything in the beginning. That even includes the angels. So we have the idea that, you know, God was, you know, around and God had this whole pantheon of angels, you know, with Him and there was whatever was going on. But according to Genesis 1-1, there was God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, as we have seen. God was not lonely. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have had fellowship with the three persons of the triune God for eternity. But when God created, there was God. And then He created everything. And that includes the angels. So in Job chapter 38 and verse 7, Job 38 verse 7, says that at creation the morning stars, speaking of angels, sang together as they saw God's creation. So a lot of people have assumed then, well, the angels must have existed before the, the creation. That's why they're able to praise God and sing at the, at the creation. Well, all that means is that God created the angels early on on day one. So I'm convinced that early on day one, God created the angels. And I'm also convinced that that includes if you, uh, Lucifer, an angel that fell and led a rebellion of angels. That all of this happened actually pretty quickly. It wasn't though as though you had, you know, for eons you had Lucifer kind of doing his thing and he was 
And then he finally, and then he finally decided, I've had enough, I'm going to rebel. Now he's created and he, he rebels and he leads some angels in rebellion and they bring their rebellion to earth. And all of it happens, all of it happens uh, fairly quickly. So in the beginning is the creation of everything, the heavens and the earth. One other point I want to make about that is notice how the earth is set apart from everything else. You got all the, you know, the planets, you got everything, but there's only one that's singled out in the very first verse of the Bible, the earth. It's one of it because this is where God determined that his activity to carry out his purpose for creation was going to occur on this planet. It's one of the reasons I'm personally not, I don't get all jazzed about interplanetary, you know, travel and what we're going to find. What I expect to find is nothing. I, ex I, I expect to find what we found so far. Nothing. <laughs> okay. And if we make it cheap, like we've made air, you know, uh, airplanes cheap to fly to other planets, then if you, you know, if you want to do that as entertainment, you know, or something, fine. But my prediction is, and I, I don't know that, of course, but based on this, my prediction is you ain't going to find nothing. That God made a vast universe primarily to show how, how mighty and majestic He is. And for people on earth to marvel at it. And that's precisely, that's precisely what we do. Now, there's some functionality to it too. Obviously, there's functionality to the sun, there's functionality to the moon, and in the very first chapter of Genesis, God points that out. you got the greater light, the sun, to rule the day, the lesser light, the moon, to rule the, the night, and God, and God put those in exact distance that they need to be away from the earth in order for earth to be able to sustain life. And if you just get them inches closer, then we're, we're either going to burn up or we're going to freeze. So it's no accident that the anthropic principle, if you Google that, you'll find that it's, it ta it's talking about conditions for anthropos, that's a word for humanity, conditions for humanity to live. The only planet that has that is, is the earth. The only planet that is right where it needs to be is the, is the earth. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that God created everything and he distinguished everything else from the earth. All right, so how do, how should we think about science as it relates to um, what the Bible teaches about creation? Well, as you look at this next paragraph where it says, since the events of creation are not observable and not repeatable, they cannot be conclusively determined by the scientific method, which requires that a phenomenon be both observable and repeatable. Now, you guys remember that? You remember from school that they said, this is the scientific method. And here's what it, it involves. That you'd be able to observe a phenomenon, you know, in a laboratory or in nature, and then that you, you make a hypothesis about what is happening, that you're able to repeat, see this process repeated. Over time, you're able to test it and then you can, you know, if you, if you prove that over time, then you can come up with a law, a scientific law, that this happens all the time because it's repeatable every time, you, every time you go through it. But creation, by its very nature, doesn't fit into that because, of course, there was no one there to see it except the Creator. So it couldn't be observed. And by definition, creation can't be repeated. 
It's created. So it's not being repeated. So neither of those fit the, the scientific fit creation, which is required for the scientific method. So does that mean we just give up on science as it relates to creation? No, here's what we do. We recognize that there are really two different kinds of science, two different kinds of science. It's not that we give up on science, but we've got to recognize that origins, whether you're talking, whatever your theory of origins is, evolution, creation, whatever, a combination, when you're dealing with origins, you're dealing with a different category of science. So some have labeled these two categories of science this way, and I've, I've found it helpful. One is operation science. Operation science. And operation science is normally what we think of when we think of science. That you're in a laboratory and you're watching how something operates. That's the name, operation science. So you're observing it. You're then repeating it. You're testing it. Okay. So that's operation science. You observe the operation in a lab or in nature. But then there is origin science, and that's a different kind of science. With origins, you, don't, you weren't there to observe it. You can't see the operation. So a, another, an interchangeable term for origin science is this, forensic, forensic science. Now you guys may... When I say that word forensic, you may not immediately associate that with something, but I think you will when I give this illustration, this example. That forensic medicine, forensic science, is what a medical examiner does. They do forensics. A medical examiner, you know, every Wayne County has a medical examiner. Everybody's got a medical examiner so that if they find, and forgive me for the morbid illustration, but if they find a dead body and the, the person has been shot, then, then the body is taken to the medical examiner. And the medical examiner wasn't there to see it. And if you don't have any other witnesses, and, and if there were other witnesses, we don't know how reliable they were, they were. So the medical examiner then is trying to determine forensically what happened in the past that he wasn't there to see. So he's taking what he has in the present to determine what happened in the past. That's forensic science. Or to put it another way, it's origin science. That's the kind of science you're dealing with when you deal with how did the universe come into existence. You're taking what we have in the present to try to figure out what happened in the past. So the medical examiner doing this forensic science is going to say, okay, the entry, you know, the, the entry wound came in this way and the bullet exited this way. So that means, uh, and you know, the hole was so large and you know, gunshot residue and all that, all that stuff to say this was the caliber gun that was used. This is how far away from the victim the person was, was standing. They're able to calculate all of that based upon looking at what they have in the present even though they weren't there when it, in the past, when it happened. And that's exactly what you're doing with, with origin science for the way the universe came into existence. But since you weren't there to see it, it doesn't strictly adhere to the, the scientific method. So just admit that it's a different kind of science and you have to make some assumptions that go into, that go into your analysis. But if you're unwilling to admit that you're 
making those assumptions, then you will draw hard and fast lines, as our evolutionists do. And they tell us that it's absolutely proven that this is the way the universe came into existence. Because you have to accept their uniformitarian assumptions as they take what's in the present and seek to go, go back. Uh, so here's an example of that. When I was in college, this, this actually ha this happened to me. I'm in college, I'm taking a uh, science class. And uh, in the science class, I'm being taught, of course, evolution. And I, as a Christian, I don't buy it. But I'm being taught that, I have to endure it. Okay, So I am taught what we're talking about here, that this is how old the universe is. And we know it's this old because we've got these fossils and we're able to measure you know, different kinds of things. And we make assumptions about those, that they've been consistent, uniform. So I'm in that class. My next class is a math class. And I go to my math class, and the math instructor is teaching us about exponents. So you guys know when we talk about exponential growth. You know, so if exponential growth is just, you know, if you have two, and they have two more, and then those four have two more each, then you're exponentially growing. I mean, in no time, you've got a growth curve that goes like this, like this, like this, and boom, straight up, okay? Exponential. So he's, he's explaining that, exponents. And he says, so based on this, lots of people who calculate future population have determined that, you know, in 40 years, we're not going to have enough food because we'll be overrun with population. Because as you look at the current number of people we have on earth and you look at the current rate of population growth and then you calculate that for 10 years and you calculate that for another 10 years it's going to be this exponential growth and we're we're gonna have too many people and too little food so you've had all kinds of people who have made those kinds of predictions one of the more uh, famous famously wrong it turns out about a hundred years ago was a guy named Thomas Malthus and you could look that up, Thomas Malthus, and he was making these kinds of calculations, and other people have done it. So here's our math teacher, and he says, so, and if you make those calculations, sure enough, that's, that's what will happen. He goes, but here's the problem. It's what these people don't realize, he says. They don't realize that the rate of population growth doesn't remain the same. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> the rate of population growth does not remain the same. It's not constant. It's not uniform that going forward things happen, like a world war. And so that kills off a bunch of people. And so population doesn't go like this, it goes more like this, you know. And they, Malthus and others, have not taken into consideration that, yes, the current rate of population would take you here, but that current rate doesn't remain the same. They're assuming nothing happens in between. Now, does that sound familiar to you guys? That's exactly the mirror image of what we're saying going the other way. So here's my math teacher saying, you can't predict population growth based upon current rate of uh, population because it doesn't remain the same. But my science teacher is telling me, you can absolutely determine the age of the universe and the age of these fossils based upon the current rate of carbon-14 decay. No, you can't with either one. Neither one of them are, are uniform. So what do we think, we Christians, about 
operation science then. That's origin science, but what about operation science? Where you actually see something happen and you see, you see mutations occur in nature. You see mutations occur, especially in a laboratory. You know, when I was in science class, I don't know what they do now, but when I was in science class, both in high school, college, uh, they always used the illustration of a fruit fly. And they, and they subjected these poor fruit flies to like just tons of doses of radiation. And so what happens is you end up with deformed fruit flies. And the case then is made is that this fruit fly's environment has been changed. And changes in environment then result in mutations. Remember what the word mutation means? To mutate just means to change. Mutate just means change. So it results in changes to the fruit fly. Changes in environment. So the assumption is, and this is the theory of evolution, that there have been these environmental changes to which then species have to adapt. And so they adapt. There are these changes in the species. And here's a proof of that. You've got the fruit fly, change the environment, all this radiation around the fruit fly, and these changes happen to the fruit fly. And it's true. You look at it in the laboratory, you do that, and you get a deformed fruit fly. You get a fruit fly with extra wings, extra head, <laughs> you get all kinds of stuff. But here's the important thing. See, for evolution to be true, you got to come up with something beyond just more fruit fly stuff. It actually has to morph into something else. The only thing you get is an extra, yeah, you might get an extra head, but guess what? That's a fruit fly head. It's not some other species. It's not some else. So the truth is, in terms of evolution, it proves nothing. And in fact, if you look at the fossil record, we don't have transitional forms anywhere. Nowhere. You've got fossils all over the place. But if the earth is as old as they claim it is, we should be tri like literally tripping over transitional forms from one species to another, and you can't find any. When you look at the drawings in the biology textbooks, that's exactly what they are. They're drawings. They're what this thing would look like if all the assumptions are true. So it, may, it actually makes it look like they found all of these, and they all connect, and they found this intact thing that's a transition from this other thing, and the truth is they haven't done anything of the sort. So zapping the fruit fly isn't going to help you. And so we say, hey, we believe in our operation science. Yeah, I totally. I believe that if you make changes to an environment, weird things happen and changes occur to the, to the object. But that proves nothing unless you see it go from one thing to another thing. This is extremely important for us to get because you get lots of questions about this and people think you're stupid <laughs> because you're denying, you're a science denier. Now, heaven knows we live in an era right now where lots of Christians are denying a lot of science, okay, in, in all sorts of ways. But I, for one, as pastor of a church where I want us to understand the relationship of God's truth to science, I'm going out of my way to try to remind us of these things. We're people of science. We're all good with science. We believe in operation science. We believe in what the medical community is able to do in a laboratory and this kinds of stuff that they're amazing stuff, frankly, that you're able to do.
But people mix categories, operation and, and, and origin. So they say to us, well, you don't believe in evolution, so you don't believe in science. That's a totally different thing. No, I don't believe in your version of origin science, but I totally believe in operation science. I remember watching Larry King. You guys remember him, Larry King? I was watching Larry King, and he had on there Bill Nye, the science guy. And Bill Nye uh, tries to make this case that these people, and he doesn't use this word, but Bill Nye is just, uh, he is just dripping with, uh, with uh, hostility toward people like us. We are just completely backwoods ignoramuses for him. And so he's, he's on there. He debated a few years ago, you guys remember that, uh, Ken Ham at the Creation Museum? They, okay. So this is Bill Nye, he's on with Larry King, and uh, he's telling Larry, the, these people, talking about guys like us, uh, they don't believe in science. But, you know, how do, they, how do they explain how we got things like aspirin and medications? And he, I can I still see Larry's reaction. He's like, <laughs> and he does that with his hand, like, there it is. I mean, how do you explain medicines? How do you explain, right? And you see, you see what Bill Nye has done. And, of course, Larry has no clue, but he's mixed categories. He wants to talk about evolution, but then he starts talking about aspirin. Aspirin's operation science. Evolution is origin science. They're two different things. And if you don't get that, then people are going to be able to snow you over with that. And they're going to make the accusation that you don't believe in in science. So we do believe in science, but in particular we believe in operation science and we believe in origin science. It's just that we want the assumptions and the uniformitarian assumptions to be put out there on the, on the table. 2 Peter chapter 3, 2 Peter chapter 3, and this is what the Bible says about the uniformitarianism assumption. 2 Peter 3. Verse 3, 2 Peter 3, 3. You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Now, let me just stop there. Now, do you see what's being said here? They're looking not back. This is not about evolution. They're looking forward and they're saying, hey, where is this coming that your Messiah promised? Because everything is just goes on the way it has since the beginning of creation. We don't have any Messiah coming back to transform the world and set up his kingdom and all of these uh, miraculous things. So where is that? They're scoffing. But what's their assumption? Uniformitarianism. It's all remained the same. And then this is what Peter says, but they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. So they deliberately forget that God has intervened. It has not remained uniform in the past. And therefore, they're making a false assumption about what's going to happen in the future. Because he goes on to say, by the same word, 
The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. So God has intervened before and broken the uniform, the uniformity. And Peter says, therefore, past performance predicts future results. God's going to intervene again. So don't take a uniformitarian approach. All right, one more thing. There are more pages to this lesson, aren't there? One more thing. You guys ever heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial? That was 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. And the reason it's called that Scopes, uh, Scope, just S-C-O-P-E, Scopes Monkey Trial, is because uh, there was a guy named uh, Scopes, uh, John T. Scopes, and he was a biology teacher. And he got hired as a science teacher in this rural town in Tennessee, rural at the time, Dayton, Tennessee. And he began teaching evolution. Well, teaching evolution in Tennessee was against the law in 1925. He broke the law. The ACLU, you guys have heard of them, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, sent a lawyer down to Dayton, Tennessee, a guy named Clarence Darrow. Clarence Darrow, uh, in 1925, would have been you know, Alan Dershowitz today or one of these high-flying, you know, lawyers, media kind of lawyer. And when I say media, I mean media. They didn't have TV, but they had print media, and he was always up being quoted in print media. Clarence Darrow, famous attorney. He goes down there. On the side of these uh, fundamentalists is, uh, and people who believe in creation, to prosecute Scopes is a guy named William Jennings Bryan. And William Jennings Bryan... It was from Dayton, Tennessee. So this thing is set up to be just a media circus because you got Darrow going down there. You got William Jennings Bryan. He's from Dayton. And William Jennings Bryan was world known. This guy was an international personality. Why? Because he had been the Secretary of State of the United States. He had been a presidential candidate like three times. He gave what is still to this day one of the most famous speeches ever at a political convention called the Cross of Gold speech. And if you, if you ever just Google that, Cross of Gold, and William Jennings Bryan, and you'll pull it up. And there he was talking about uh, the gold standard, uh, and it was an economic thing, but he called it the Cross of Gold, and you will not crucify us on this Cross of Gold, he says, and he's got this rhetorical flourish. And anyway, so Bryan is this famous guy, ran for president, was the Secretary of State, all of that. He's down there, Clarence Darrow's down there, the media comes down there, from all over the place. And Scopes is prosecuted and is uh, convicted. And he's fined for, for doing this. But even though William Jennings Bryan won the battle, he lost the war. Because in the media, they made him and they made those who believe in creation look like ignoramuses. Print media all over the country, in particular a guy named H.L. Mencken. H.L. Mencken was a guy who just hated fundamentalist people who believe the Bible. He wrote for the Baltimore Evening Sun, and he just wrote these scathing reports about William Jennings Bryan and the people down in Dayton, Tennessee, and, and all of that. So to this day, Scopes is the name of the guy. The monkey trial, obviously because you know we came from apes. And so it's called, this, to this day, the Scopes Monkey Trial. And it lives on. We're almost 100 years later 
now. That was 1925, and that lives on in the imagination of people, partly because it was made into a play, a book, and a movie called Inherit the Wind. Inherit the Wind. And Inherit the Wind does not portray what happened in Dayton, Tennessee accurately, and as a result, people like us are made to look, are made to look foolish. All right, origin of mankind. We believe in science. We believe in operation science. We believe in the scientific method. But we want to know the uniformitarian assumptions that go into your origin science. Now see the note there just before point B? Though Adam and Eve came into being by the direct creation of God, the entire human race except Jesus Christ descended from Adam and Eve by procreation. So they were created, we're procreated. Uh, we come into existence from the union of man and woman, obviously. All right, point B. Mankind was created, instantaneous and immediate, and in the image of God. Distinctive from all the other creation, the Bible clearly states that mankind was created in the image of God. The image or likeness does not refer to a physical resemblance because God is spirit and does not have a body. Rather, it refers to a personal and moral resemblance. Let's look at those on the next page. Personal resemblance to God. Humans and God communicate person to person. And humans and God share the components of personhood. Like God, humans possess intellect, will, and emotion. These components of personhood operate in a logical sequence. The mind is foundational because it controls the operation of the will and the emotions. The function of these are, can be visualized this way. Mind affects will. Mind and will affect emotion. Now that's important for us to, to bear in mind. Uh, because, because in our day, emotion rules. The tyranny of the emotions is something that, that we are assaulted with. And the Bible does not teach the tyranny of the emotions. The Bible actually commands us to feel certain ways. You know, the Bible commands us to have joy. Now, in, in, today, in, in today's thinking, you, you can't command emotions. Emotions just are. They, just whatever, they are just whatever they are. They just happen to you, and you just have them, and they, and they can't be controlled. And so that's what I mean by the tyranny of the emotions then. But the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't present it that way. The Bible presents the mind and the will, the things we think and the things we do, as affecting then in turn the things we, we feel. The reason we can have joy even in the midst of very difficult circumstances is because we think about those circumstances in a radically different way. The Apostle Paul can be chained to a Roman guard. He can write the letter to the Philippians, and in Philippians chapter 4, with a Roman guard chained to him, he can write, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I will say it again, rejoice. Well, how can he do that? Because he goes on to talk about the secret to being content. He says this, I know the secret of being content in any and every situation. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, he says. So he looks at all of his circumstances, whether he's in a shipwreck, whether he's getting ready to be beheaded, which he ultimately was. No matter what it was, he looks at it in a radically different way. And so he can have this joy even in the midst of... So lose the idea, friends, that emotions rule. Emotions do not rule. Truth rules. 
the way we think, what we do, is to rule our, our emotions. So it's a personal resemblance to God. It's also a moral resemblance to God. Mankind was created in a state of moral purity and possesses the ability to discern right from wrong. This image of God in mankind was marred by the fall into sin, but not lost. It was effaced, but it was not erased. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this, but most of you know that we were made in the image of God. But I think a lot of people have the mistaken notion, even Christian people, that once we sinned, which we'll see next week, but once we sinned, that the image of God is, is gone. The image of God still remains. It remains in every single human being. It's been marred, it's been distorted, but it's still there. For us to reflect God morally back to God, to think like God, to talk like God would talk, to act like God would act, we, we, still, have that, we still have that capacity. And even non-Christian people still actually behave at times in that way. They still have the, the, um, still have the image of God. Now, how do we know this? We know this because sin occurred in the human race in Genesis chapter 3. Again, we'll have a whole lesson on it next week. But then you come to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. Now, Genesis chapter 9 is hundreds of, of years. It's a, a, well over a millennia after creation. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 9 and Noah and the flood and all of that. And in Genesis chapter 9, now the flood has happened, Noah and his family have been saved, and God gives commandments about how his world now, his new world, the old one has passed away, and he's, okay, we're starting over in effect. And he says, this is how it's going to be operated. And one of the things he says is this. He says in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, He who sheds man's blood will have his own blood shed. That is, anybody who murders another human being will be killed themselves. That's what God says, Genesis 9, 6. And then God gives the reason. Because He has destroyed one made in the image of God. That's what it says. So even here, over a millennia, over a thousand years after creation, and after the fall, the image of God still remains in every human being, so much so that God says, if you destroy that image by murdering it, then you yourself will be killed. God instituted capital punishment because humanity is so precious. And in the New Testament, just as an aside, in Romans chapter 13, even in the New Testament, capital punishment still remains. Um, Paul says that the, the governor, the authorities, Romans 13, this is a quote, verse 4, Romans 13, verse 4, do not bear the sword for nothing. You know what they did with the sword? They executed people. So capital punishment was still in effect in the, in the Old Testament. All right, here's a third thing. We were made in uh, immediately and instantaneously. We were made in the image of God. And C, we were created in a state of unconfirmed holiness. God did not create sin or create mankind as sinful. Mankind was created morally pure and without sin. However, that purity was unconfirmed, and when met with Satan's temptation, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. Adam is, top of page 83, representative of the entire human race in choosing to sin. In doing so, he plunged all mankind into sin. 
But we can't blame Adam for individual acts of sin because each individual chooses to sin as well. Or to put it another way, there's no reason for you to think that if you were there, you would have done anything different. God chose a perfect representative for you and me. And He represented us perfectly. And so what He did, we're guilty of. All right, that's the origin of mankind. Here's our nature. The Bible speaks of individuals being fearfully and wonderfully made. Modern medicine recognizes that each person has several physical systems. Each part of the individual fulfills its function so the entire person can act. And yet with all the different parts, every individual functions as a single person. The Bible refers to us as things like body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, conscience, and so on. Yet it stresses that each human being with all those parts is a unity, a whole person. The varied components of mankind's nature can be categorized in two aspects that form this one unit. There's the material and the immaterial. So when we say mankind's nature has a material aspect, what we're saying is we are matter. So matter or material... You know, when we say somebody is a materialist, we generally are thinking of somebody who's greedy, somebody who's just filthy rich and they want more. They're materialistic. Well, the reason we call it that is because we're saying that all that matters to them is, ma is matter. All they care about is the material, and so we call them a materialist. They don't have anything above the matter, above the physical stuff that transcends that, that informs what they do. They're just after the physical stuff. So that's what we mean by our material aspect. We mean our, our physical aspect. The material aspect of every individual is their body. And obviously the material part has many components. For example, five senses, a nervous system. But we are material. We have a body. But we're also immaterial. The immaterial aspect of people is often referred to as their spirit or soul. Now what about that? What about the spirit or soul? I mean, what's a spirit? What's a soul? What's the difference between them? Many people would like to distinguish between these and say that everyone's made up of three parts, body, soul, spirit. We're going to see in that paragraph that that's not the case, that we are physical and spiritual. We are material and we are immaterial. We are body and we are spirit. And then we'll talk about soul here in, in a second. Here's one of the dangers, though, you say, okay, no big deal. And you know, generally it wouldn't be. But this is one of the ways it's actually become a big deal in theology and in psychology. Uh, body, soul, spirit. If you take, this is called a trichotomist approach. Tri meaning three. Body, soul, spirit. Uh, if you believe, as I do, that we are just two things. We are body and spirit then that's a dichotomist approach, okay? Two or three. If you take the three approach, trichotomist approach, body, soul, spirit, what a number of psychologists, Christian psychologists have done is this. They have said, look, your three components, body, soul, and spirit, you need a medical doctor for your body. You need a pastor for your spirit. And you need a psychologist for your soul. And so that created, and, and for a long time, people bought, bought into this idea. And, and to this day, people do as well. So the idea is there's this realm for the psychologist that the pastor doesn't have any expertise on. You know, the medical doctor doesn't have any expertise on. It's the, it's the psychologist. 
the Christian psychologists. A lot of Christian psychologists take this trichotomous approach, and so you've got the soul is their realm. Do you know what psychology, you know what the word psychology means? Study of the soul. The actual word, the, the, the Greek word for soul in the New Testament is suke. So we get psychology from that. So if you have the soul as its own province, and then you have people who are studiers of the soul, psychologists, then that's their, their thing. And so for a long time, pastors just, you know, just said, hey, I can't deal with your psychological problems. I, I have to send you to a psychologist for that. And in 1970, a guy named Jay Adams wrote a book called uh, Competent to Counsel, 1970. That was a seminal book because Jay Adams said, wait, wait back up. <laughs> there is no section that's siphoned off from God's Word. <laughs> There's no section that's siphoned off from somebody who knows God's Word being apply, able to apply it to your problems. You don't have to go to somebody else that's... Anybody who... And that's why he called it competent to counsel. He actually took that phrase from Romans chapter 15 and verse 14 that actually uses that phrase, where Paul says of regular Christians in the city of Rome, in Romans 15 and verse 14, he says, I myself am convinced brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness and full of knowledge, and you are able to instruct, some translations say, or competent to counsel each other. That's what it says. So he took the title of his book from that, and from that was born what we now today call the biblical counseling movement. Now, I, I very much appreciate people who have time and training to put into listening to people and evaluating what's going on with them and giving counsel to them. And so I'm not against all psychologists, and, and I'm not against all psychiatry either. But I am against anybody who says that there is this province of human behavior that is outside of God's Word. And that people who know God's Word and can bring it to bear then uh, don't have don't have anything to say about that. And so that body-soul-spirit idea is important in, in that respect. However, middle of that paragraph, all throughout the Bible there's a contrast between body and soul or even body and spirit. Both are used interchangeably, that is soul and spirit, to refer to the immaterial part. It's difficult to make hard and fast distinctions between spirit, soul, heart, mind, all of which are part of this immaterial aspect. It's clear, however, that there is this material aspect that is physical, and there is an immaterial, soul and spirit. So here is, I think, a helpful way to, to think of this. Genesis 2.7 indicates that man has a body, has a spirit, is a soul. <laughs> so you got two things. you got body and spirit. you got physical, you got spiritual. Matter, immaterial. And together you are a whole, you are a soul. So rather than making it a third thing, it's a description for the whole thing, body and spirit. A person's human identity comes by the union of the material and the immaterial. From Genesis 2-7 where it says that, that God breathed into Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul. We see when the body and spirit were united, 
Adam became this living soul. As was stated previously, these two parts unite to make a complete human being. The difference is this, at death, when the material part of a person is subject to decay, the immaterial part is separated from the physical. So I said on Sunday, if you guys were here Sunday morning during our worship service, that the Bible teaches that death is separation and physical death is the separation of the spirit from the body. That's what we're talking about here. So you are animated because you have you have spirit, you have, you are a spiritual being. Even unsaved people are spiritual beings, they just are dead spiritually. They don't, they don't use what they have, the, the spiritual faculty they have, to relate to God as they were made to do. And so all human beings are spiritual beings, and when we die, it's the separation of the spirit from the body. Lastly, page 84, mankind's nature is passed on through procreation. Genesis chapter 5 says, Adam had a son in his likeness, in his own image. Now remember, Adam's created in chapter 1. And when Adam is created and Eve is created, male and female, it says God created them in his image. So humanity is made in the image of God. And then by procreation, Adam and Eve have children. But those children then are made, yes, in God's likeness, but also in the likeness of their parents. And that's what happens as stated in Genesis chapter 5. When Adam became the father of Seth, he was the father of a son in his own likeness. Although Adam was made directly in the image of God, his children were generated in Adam's image, which still bore God's. The transmission of each person's being was and is through natural generation or procreation. This is true of both the body and the spirit or soul. So here's what we're saying, that biblically... Your spirit and your body come into existence at exactly the same time. When, you're con when you were conceived, now your body and your spirit both come into existence. They're both given to you by procreation, naturally generated. Now here's one of the ways you know that. Uh, all right, so have you ever thought about this? Next week's lesson is on how we are sinful. This is how we, our nature from creation, we're going to see our sinful nature next week. Think about this. When did you get your sin nature? When, at what point did you become a sinner? The Bible teaches that that happened at conception. In fact, it's Psalm 51 and verse 5. Psalm 51 and verse 5. David, who wrote Psalm 51, says, I'm quoting now, he says, in sin my mother conceived me. At the moment of conception, I, David, was sinful. At the moment of conception, you were sinful, I was sinful. Now, that actually has ramifications for a very important moral and now political issue, abortion. Because we teach, we believe that you have life at what? Life at conception. Part of the reason we believe you have life at conception is because at conception, we become sinners. You have spiritual, you're a spiritual being at conception. And so this is a living being at the moment of conception, body and spirit, sinful spirit, but nonetheless, spirit. Now, that's, so that's one. David says that, Psalm 51 and verse 5. And then Jesus, when Jesus is born. You all remember that when Jesus was born, it was a miraculous, 
not just birth, what was actually more miraculous was the conception. We talk about the virgin birth of Jesus, but it wasn't really the birth. It was the, the virgin conception <laughs> that was the miracle. The Bible teaches that Mary had conceived within her a child conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. So she had never been with Joseph. She had never been with a man. So Jesus comes in, in this mirac- to the human race in this miraculous way. Not by the product of a sperm and an egg coming together, conception, human conception, and then a sinful nature being passed on, like it was with David, like it was with you, like it was with me. That miraculous conception was necessary in order to keep Jesus from having a sin nature. And so that whole thing, story, that right at the beginning of your New Testament, of Joseph and Mary being engaged, being betrothed, but then Mary is expecting, and Joseph's like, how can that be? And at first he's figuring she cheated on me, remember? And then the angel comes and says, Joseph, fear not. This is what's going on with her. What's conceived within her is from the Holy Spirit and all of that. So all of that taken together, Jesus' miraculous conception and the necessity of his miraculous conception to keep him from having a sin nature. So he comes into the world, God as man in this miraculous way, so that when he comes, he does not have a sin nature. And of course, we know he then lived his life. He never sinned. And died on the cross and could die as a perfect then substitute for us, having not, having not sinned. There's a fancy Latin term for everything I just said to you. It's called traducianism, and the Latin term is tradux, T-R-A-D-U-X, and that means seed. And traducianism is, is referring to how the, how the, the seed of the, the soul and the body are passed on, and they're passed on at conception. God created Adam and Eve sinless, but every individual born since then is conceived in sin with the exception of Jesus Christ. All human beings receive their nature, both their physical and immaterial, from their parents. Therefore, our sin nature does not come from God. It comes from our old man and our old lady, (laughs) which came from their old man and their old lady, and then all the way back to Adam and Eve, and here we are. All right? Now, I don't like to brag, but you guys didn't think I was going to make it, but lo and behold, we have made it by 8.15. So we'll do lesson uh, number 10 next week on the sinfulness of human... Oh, thank you. Thank you, Nadine. She shook her head no. no. We're not meeting next week because of Thanksgiving. So in two weeks, we'll do lesson 10.